Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Miriam Knight, and my guest today is Ellen Tad. Ellen is an internationally known clairvoyant counselor and educator, and she's been teaching counseling for more than 40 years. She's widely respected for the integrity of her work, and she's lectured around the country at colleges, universities, hospitals, and community groups. She has three books out, The Wisdom of the Chakras, Death and Letting Go, which actually made the Boston Globe bestseller list, and her latest book is called The Infinite View. It's going to be released next week on a very auspicious day. March 28th, which happens to be my daughter's birthday. Well done, Ellen. <laughs> and welcome. Great. Thank you. It's, it's wonderful to be with you. Ellen, the tagline for your book is a guidebook for life on Earth. What makes it such a book? Well, um, the book really focuses on my experiences with beings in the spiritual world who have been my teachers for quite a long time now. And so the concepts are really theirs. They have taught me, they have uh, transformed my worldview. And so they're in the spiritual world, but they have a infinite view perspective about life on earth. And Mm -hmm. so that's why the title is, the Infinite View, a guidebook for life on Earth, from this more expanded perspective. Just what is, in your view, the difference between the human perspective and the spiritual perspective? Well, I think it's very common in in psychology to think of people as um, impacted by genetics and environment, nature and nurture. What I've been taught by uh, my guides and teachers from the spiritual world is that we're all um, impacted by genetics, our environment from parents, society, and education, but also our past life influences as well as our spiritual essence. And they say our spiritual essence is the enlightened part of our nature. It's the only constant. Everything else is evolving. And they say that fulfillment is the actualization of our spiritual nature. And so this um, really changes the definition of who are we and why are we here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You have a very interesting distinction between soul and spirit. Could you describe it for our listeners? Yes, some people use those words interchangeably, but I've been taught that the spirit is a spark of the God force that, as I said, is the only constant. It's our enlightened self, and each spirit has an individual emphasis. One spirit may emphasize creativity or nurturing or power, and the soul is the container of the spirit that allows the spirit to have individuality and animation. The soul, though, is very complicated. It contains all of our past life patterns, traumas, talents, and skills that have accumulated through all of the many lives we've lived. So the soul is evolving, and the spirit is not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, when 
did you actually realize that you had psychic abilities and um, how did you go about developing them? Well, when I was a child, I, I had experiences, but I was frightened by them. I often slept with my light on. I was considered an overly sensitive child. It was not until I was 19 and my mother came back and talked to me after she died. And this experience was actually through a trans medium, my brother's girlfriend at the time. And my mother had a severe case of MS and she came back to tell me that she had chosen a difficult life to learn compassion for those who suffer. And she said, no matter how things appear, if you look deeply, you'll see there's always reasons and always justice. And then after that experience, I stopped fighting my natural sensitivity. Instead of seeing it as a problem, I started to see it as a gift. Mm -hmm. And when did you make the acquaintance of your guides? And what did you think of them? Were they comforting? Were they scary? Well, after that, well... The first thing that happened was that night, <laughs> I um, I thought, oh, my God, I'm never alone. All my thoughts and behavior is known and seen. And at first it felt um, embarrassing and I felt self-conscious. And then as time went on, it became a tremendous comfort to know that really all, all I need to do is be myself, be genuine. Um the process was a gradual process of um, having beings in the spiritual world start to appear to me. And vision can be inner vision or outer vision, and I had both. And I also was communicated with through telepathy as well as audible clairaudience. And so I spent many years living in the country going through a rigorous education. They they really trained me when my children were young, and it was such a strong education that I actually dropped out of college, which was considered a real cardinal sin in my family because my father was a professor. But I I knew that the experiences that I was having were genuine and um, and trained me not only to develop my perceptive ability, but really trained me in a philosophy of life. You know, a lot of people have experiences that they cannot otherwise explain through normal physical laws. And a classic reaction is to feel that you're going crazy or um, it's just a coincidence. How did you actually come to begin to trust um, these experiences as being real? And how long did it take until that really became embodied trust? Well, you know, I started out as a skeptic. Um, When I had the experience of my mother coming back and talking to me, I could see her face superimposed over the mediums. So it was absolutely clear to me that it was her. So in that moment, um, everything everything changed. Um, when I started having connection with my guides, 
I could see them and they had so much light around them and their, their wisdom was so obvious that I felt trust pretty quickly. I mean, they were not subtle experiences. They were very dramatic. You know, I, I, uh, I really um, hadn't been raised with any organized religion. And in some ways, I think that that contributed to my openness. I didn't have a lot of preconceived notions that I had to deal with. I just was having direct experiences. When I work with people, and I've worked with a lot of students now to help them develop their abilities, I... Um, I like to emphasize that that everyone has perceptions in varying degrees and that life has a lot of mystery to it. And I, I give people tools and techniques to expand their perceptions. And what I find is that it's a process of reconditioning helping to uh, transform the limited conditioning that we've all gotten from society and from our educational system that, you know, that we're just our brain and, and that we're biological alone. And the direct experiences really, more than anything, is what develops trust. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the most useful skill that you teach in the book? Well, I don't know if I'd say the most useful, but the most easily learned is the activation of the third eye. So the third eye chakra in the middle of the forehead is the center of wisdom and clarity. It's the center of a spiritual perception. And as my guides say, perception informs feeling. They say that feelings come from many places and they're not necessarily trustworthy. Feelings can come from fear. Feelings can come from clarity. Feelings can come from the opinions of others. And they say the more that people develop deep focus and concentration, they open the third eye chakra, which has a kind of objectivity and a broader understanding. So I try to teach everyone what I call the TAD technique, which is the comparison of perception from the gut with perception from the third eye. And this simple technique usually wows people. People go from emotional turmoil to clarity. They go from confusion to wisdom. And as my guides say, it's a pivot away. You just pivot your focus and you transform your perception. I read the description of that technique, and it sounds easy. Um, in practice, how easy is it for people to actually learn? My experience is it's easy for people to have an initial experience. The challenge is learning to sustain it. The um, initial experience helps people to understand its value, and then they go about the process of learning to live life looking through the forehead. My guides say when you open two eyes, open three. And that's where the work lies it, because there's a, a habit that many people have of living in the gut. And the habit needs to be broken. And the way 
it gets broken is through self-observation and then a correction. But the initial experience usually is pretty quick and pretty powerful. One of my favorite stories is when I was teaching this exercise to a group of high school students. So here was a uh, a sweet um, African-American young man who had his pants that were kind of low and his underwear sticking out and he, uh, you know, he had an image of being rebellious and he came up to me and he said, when I was in my third eye, I wasn't angry. And he kept saying it over and over again because he was so amazed that when he went to his third eye, he wasn't angry. And he said it over and over again. And I could tell that he had this self-image that he was an angry young man. And what he learned was perception informs feeling. And where you're focused informs how you perceive. And so it was a real revelation to him. And it's so powerful because, you know, we we live in a challenging world. And how do we best navigate it? Well, the third eye is one of the most powerful tools because it's kind of like the miner's light that illuminates our path. And it puts um, everything into context. So it's not as important what's happening is how we respond to it. Sometimes we can control our circumstances, sometimes we simply can't. So the process of navigating with wisdom is our best shot. You write about something called the first error that we come into life with. Um, Yes. And it's obviously not like the notion of original sin. So what is it and how does that inform our life path? Well, it has some similarity to original sin, but it also has some difference. So what I was taught is that we have all... We all began with an enlightenment, and my definition of enlightenment is that we all had the ability to manifest and actualize our spiritual nature with consistency. And then we lost it. Most everyone I know lost it. And there's an original fear, an original confusion that my guides call first error. And this is the beginning of the karmic snowball, the beginning of... um, falling into fear and confusion. And so they've taught me that there's an original first error, which is the root lesson. And what that root lesson is in me is not the same in others. One way to think about it is it's our deepest fear. My guides say there's a profound relationship between our deepest desire and our deepest fear and that our deepest desire is linked to our spiritual nature, while our deepest fear is linked to our first error. So I found for myself, and I think my students have found, that by understanding one's first error, you start to see a repetitive pattern in our lives, because I see life on the earth is our school. And so here's our lesson plan, really working to resolve this deepest issue. Can you give us some examples to illustrate this? Um, Well, what I have learned is the spiritual world is like a layer cake. There are many different realms, 
And people of a similar vibration, a similar attitude reside together. This is why there's the concept of heaven, hell, and purgatory, because there's a sense of like is with like. Here on earth, I always say you can have a saint and a murderer on the same bus. We're all together, which means there are certain lessons that we can learn here that we can't learn in the spiritual world. So one example of a first error is someone who comes to the earth and they're used to being in a place of of light and a place of um, positivity. And they come to the earth where everybody's together, negativity, positivity, kindness, cruelty, and then the first error is feeling unsafe in the world and becoming afraid. And so the first error is the fear of being unsafe. And that fear then manifests in certain behaviors, certain perceptions. Um, You know, I can think of one client who married someone because she thought that he would keep her safe, even though it was an unhappy marriage. So my guides always say, are your decisions made from clarity or are they made from fear? And if they're made from fear, then the first error is being repeated. And if they're made from clarity, then the spiritual nature is being actualized. So that's just one example. And, you know, sometimes our fears are understandable, but even if they are, we are still going to suffer with them. And life wants us to learn and become stronger than our fears. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the typical first errors? I mean, are, are there... Um sort of repetitive classes of error like uh, you described wanting, feeling insecure, wanting to be safe, or um, yes. what, are, what are some of the typical ones? Um, so the fear of not being safe, the fear of not being loved, the fear of being inadequate, the fear um, of... Um, I, I should say anger at ignorance and the ram, the mm-hmm. fear of the ramification of ignorance, um, the, the fear of the misuse of power, the fear of um, not actualizing potential. And it's not that people won't have more than one fear, but what I've found by tracing people back in their past lives is that there's an initial one. It's, there's a deepest one, which is the root. A really good example I give in my book is a woman that I worked with who felt the fear of not being safe, and she felt the fear of not actualizing her potential, and and so she was confused about, you know, what is her deepest fear? But on, with deeper examination, there was the fear that if she tried to actualize her creativity and her potential, that that would make her vulnerable in the world. And so she felt like she had to conform to what was expected of her and in order to be safe. But her deepest fear really was not actualizing her creative potential. So sometimes so it are- looks kind of twisted. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to ask if these deepest fears tend to be accumulated through past lives. Do you believe in the idea of past lives? 
Absolutely. I, I do believe in reincarnation, and I think reincarnation really helps us to understand why we have the lives we have. And But the thing that I've seen with the first error is the first error is the same in every life. It manifests differently depending on the environment that a person incarnates into, but the root issue is always the same. Justice, the spiritual nature is always the same. So you say that we are here to learn lessons. Do we ever get it? Do we ever get beyond it? Um, Well, we're always learning, and there's always the potential to learn. I remember once asking my guide, you know, when we learn, are we going to go back into oneness? And I was told it's so far away, don't worry about it. Just focus on (laughs) the actualization of your spirit. And so, you know, they say it's an evolution, not a revolution. It's a slow, evolving, deep, transformative process. They say it's not a race. And so we're here to learn, to enjoy, and to contribute. And to not feel like we have to rush in our learning process because it's deep and it's linked to not just learning a lesson in one circumstance, but being able to learn the same lesson in a variety of circumstances. I always feel a little uncomfortable about the notion of of coming to school on planet Earth in this lifetime, you know, and having this curriculum that you have to go through. It's like um, not wanting to be in school, you know. Uh, um, is there kind of a, a preset lesson that you have to get this and then you can go on to the next grade, then you graduate to the next level? Or is it really more a sense that we are creating as we go? So we create along this path and then do everything we can in this direction. And then next time we come, we might branch off into a different direction. See what I mean? I do. What I've been taught is originally we were all one and that the desire to um, create is what created the Big Bang. It came out of a pure desire to create and to express. And so we were part of a creative process. But as people evolved, they became disconnected to fundamental universal spiritual laws. Um, So originally I was told that the life process was about creativity and expression. But as people developed these first errors, this disconnection from fundamental spiritual principles, life became more of the school. So the creativity was the initial purpose. Mm-hmm. So presumably uh, we have to learn our lessons and then we get back into the cycle of creativity. So, yes. Well, okay. That that sounds encouraging. So, we were exploring the really fascinating notion of this deep impulse toward creation and creativity that 
started with the Big Bang, I guess, and how we have gone a bit off beam. And what we're doing here in physical incarnation, I would guess it's a combination, Ellen, wouldn't you, of both um, learning to reconnect with source and reconnect with that um, creative impulse. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. Um, I think that it's not that we have to learn to connect with spiritual principles and then we can be creative. I think the creative process is linked to the learning, but before our first errors, then the purpose really was to create, to experience life, to to share in the midst of love and wisdom and the, the infinite possibilities. I mean, life is a remarkable thing, you know. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But as you know, we've we've developed a world where there's a lot of suffering and a lot of disconnection from spiritual principles. And I think the, the beauty of this challenging time is that it is a catalyst that, that uh, causes people to ask deeper questions, to search for meaning and to look for solutions, which then has the potential to bring people more to a spiritual perspective. I totally agree. I think that view is really necessary to keep your own center in these rather challenging times. Uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I My favorite quote from Oscar Wilde is, be yourself, everyone else is taken. And I think that that, <laughs> That's great. I think that that's really <laughs> that's wonderful. Our, <laughs> that's our gift to the universe, ourselves, and we don't appreciate that. I think one of the great benefits of teachings like yours is to get people to reconnect with their value and their their uniqueness as individuals and what they can contribute to the world and, and to free them from their fears so that they can boldly go where none has gone before. Yes, and my guides you, say that everyone's spirit is their particular instrument in the orchestra of life, mm-hmm. that Beautiful. we're here to play our instrument in the orchestra of life. And, and they also say something really important, which is that it's really significant and important to separate identity from behavior, that mm-hmm. people are very conditioned that they are how they behave, but we are good and we are spirit and we are part of the creative force of the universe and we're learning. So our behavior is not fully aligned with who we are, but we're not our behavior. Our behavior can evolve, can change as our awareness grows. So this is why it's so important to see that we're not just human. Because from the human perspective, people's identity becomes their behavior. And then when they make mistakes, they feel bad about themselves instead of recognizing that it's just 
it's just an inevitable part of the process. Well, that's kind of the fundamental lesson in good parenting, that you disapprove of the behavior and not of the child. Exactly. And we do know this more with children than we do with adults. With children, the tendency is to think, well, you know, they're young and they're going to grow up. With adults, the tendency is to think, (laughs) well, they're grown up now. This is who they are. But my guides say everyone at every age is still in a stage of growth and development. And uh, at any time, anyone can transform. At any time, someone can learn and deepen their self-awareness. You have a really interesting exercise in your book where you line up four of your students and you use muscle testing and observe the reaction when you give them uh, suggestions. Can you describe that? Yes. It's an exercise that demonstrates how sensitive we are to the thoughts and the feelings of others. So I line up four people and the person in the front of the line, I have them put out their arm for muscle testing. And then I go to the back of the line and I whisper a nasty thought. Then I go to the front of the line and the person in the front of the line's arm is weak. Then I go to the back of the line and I whisper um, a positive, supportive, loving thought. And I go to the person in the front of the line and their arm is strong. And This I've done many times, and it's very consistent. Then I have the people in the middle of the line who were being neutral start saying affirmations. I am spirit. I am good. I am strong. I am light. Then I whisper a nasty thought in the ear of the person at the back of the line, and then when I muscle test the person in the front of the line, they're strong, So the positivity of the people in the middle breaks the chain of negativity. So if we're standing in the bank line or we're standing in the grocery store and we're just neutral and someone next to us is depressed or angry or in emotional turmoil, it's very common for people to get affected by that and to walk out feeling tired or to feel annoyed and wonder what happened. They, you know, we were feeling so good and now we're not. And so my guides say neutral is not enough. That being opened without a positive affirmation of self creates a vulnerability to overly absorbing what's going on around us. What's a good all-purpose affirmation? Well, I like I'm spirit temporarily on the earth. That (laughs) always helps me put things in perspective. Then I don't, I I feel like it's all temporary. And um, the other one I like is I know who I am. I know who I am which simply means I know that I'm spirit and I know that I'm good. I know who I am. Mm-hmm. You talk about the, the concept of oneness. 
How would you describe your understanding of it? Well, you know, we know that um, that energy and frequency is everywhere. So if, like right now, I'm sitting in a chair next to a table, I have a jacket on, but there's this so-called space between my jacket, my chair, and my table. Well, that space is not empty. It's brimming with energy, vibration, and frequency. So even at a physical level, there's oneness. There's an energetic unity that exists. In many ways, I think of myself more as um, someone who's a metaphysicist rather than um, you know, religious orientation. I'm really interested in the nature of spiritual reality. And there's oneness. We're not separate. And this is true at the physical level. That's true at the spiritual level. And therefore, uh, everything is interconnected. And I believe that nature demonstrates this principle very well, which is why it's so important to listen to nature and recognize that if you, you know, pollute in China, the air doesn't stay in China. We're a one earth, we're one interconnected system on an energetic level. And as my guides have taught me, this energetic system at the deepest level is conscious and it contains spiritual principles that hold life together such as love and compassion and wholeness and wisdom. These are the fundamental universal principles that exist at the spiritual level beneath everything. This is a so concept. So I think more of a God force rather than a God, a God force. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that this is a concept that seems to be particularly sorely tested um, on the social and political front around the world now, where we have lost this sense of oneness um, and are very much focusing in on other and self, you know, as as building a wall between us and the other how yeah would you how do your guides react to that do they well they said for many years your world circumstance will worsen and they say people will fall to the side of fear or they'll fall to the side of a spiritual perspective and no one will be able to ride the fence So this isolation approach, I believe, is a manifestation of fear. And ultimately, it doesn't work because it's not in harmony with spiritual principles. So it it creates reaction and uh, bigger problems. So I, um, I think it's important for people who disagree with this separation approach to, um, in their own lives, use what I call attunement, which is aligning our conscious mind with our spirit and make decisions from this deeper place. 
Mm-hmm. And that goes back to having the third eye view, the spiritual view. Ellen, what is attunement? Um, you you were discussing it. How, how can we achieve it? What does it do for you? Well, I define attunement as aligning our conscious mind with our spirit. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like a tuning fork. It's creating a harmony between our conscious mind and this deepest essential part of our nature. And the two fundamental skills that I teach to access attunement are deep listening and deep focus. If you think about the senses, you can take them all to a deeper level. And the depth is key to accessing this inner resonance. And one of the challenges we have is that we live in a culture where people often rush. And in order to access attunement, there's a need to, um, I think of it as be in rhythm rather than rush. This rhythm can be quick or slow, but it has a certain um, quality to it that allows us to listen and focus and not be confused by the distractions of what other people are doing and other people are thinking and hone in on this internal spiritual source. It sounds a lot like grounding and finding your own center rather than being buffeted by every emotional or wind that comes by. Well, definitely it's finding our own center. I like to think of grounding as attention to detail, that uh the oneness is everything, and the attention to detail is the specifics. And what I find is that when, when we focus on the details of life, that's what gives us a grounded feeling, and that the real challenge is to feel oneness, and many at the same time, oneness and detail. So that if we're focused on detail without oneness, we don't have expansion. And if we have expansion without focusing on details, then we get um, spacey or, um, you know, not well integrated. So the real challenge is putting those two together. And a key tool that you teach in your book is meditation. You have a different approach to meditation than the ones we commonly hear about. Can you describe it for us? Yes. Well, for me, meditation isn't a relaxation exercise. It's uh, stilling the brain chatter so that I can listen. And whether that listening is focused on my own inner spirit, the spiritual oneness, or my guides, the prerequisite is to stop brain chatter. So the way I teach meditation is like an X, and the bottom part of the X is everyday thought. The point in the center is stillness. The upper part of the X is revelation. It's connection with the spirit within and the spirit without. And the three steps I teach First is inspiration, because when we feel inspired, our crown chakra at the top of the head opens, and this is the bridge from the material to the spiritual dimension. Mm 
My favorite quote is by Emily Dickinson, where she said she knows a poem by two things. One, when she feels chills all over her body and can't get warm sitting next to a fire. And two, when she feels the top of her head open. And that's the feeling of an open crown chakra, having the top of your head feel opened. And it opens from inspiration or devotion. So before we meditate, opening the crown chakra to me is a prerequisite because if it's not opened, you're not going to have direct spiritual experience. It's the door to spirit. And so it's the, it's the golden halo in religious pictures. And I've found through observation that inspiration opens it every time. So first people need to think about what inspires me and focus on it before meditating. And then the second step is affirmation, a positive affirmative statement such as I am spirit, infinite spirit, to practicing one thought before you say no thought, and also to uh, create a positivity, a positivity for protection, a positivity for expansion. And then I suggest saying the affirmation and then letting it go, a kind of pause, holding the pause for a little while, then going back to the affirmation. It's like a rocking sensation and gradually elongating the pauses and elongating the stillness. But I really um, suggest that people go back to the affirmation as much as they need it so that meditations don't become sloppy where, you know, people are thinking thoughts and, and saying they're meditating because it's only through real stillness coupled with the open crown chakra that the direct experiences happen. That's fascinating. So is there a, like um, a skill that, that we can um, achieve to uh, go into this state quickly? Because you, um, is this connected with viewing through the third eye? Well, the third eye is the best tool for integrating with life. As far as meditation goes, I always think of meditation as stepping out of life and going into the closet and closing the door and being directly with spirit. I always tell people that we don't have to die to have direct connection with spirit. We just have to have a profound meditation. So the third eye can aid in meditation, but the most important thing is the open crown, the expansion of positivity, and the ability to hold brain chatter still. I had a friend who used to practice meditating by sitting in a chair, and every time he had a thought, he'd walk around the chair and start over, and walk around the chair and start over. He got tired of it, and he learned to really hold his mind still, and then he started having direct revelation. It's, it's so key, and... Um, I think because meditation has been associated with relaxation, people are missing out on the profound aspect that meditation can bring. And it's not that I'm not a proponent of relaxation. That's important, too. But it's very different. Mm -hmm. So getting back to the tool of the third eye view, 
Um, how do you get into that? How do you enable yourself to use it? Well, focus and concentration is key. So quite literally, when I wake up in the morning, I look at the corner of a picture frame. And when I stare at that point, it activates the third eye because focus and concentration activates the third eye. And then I have a clarity of what my priorities are for the day. So there's only one way to activate the third eye, and that is focus. That focus can happen with our eyes closed. When we're focused out of the forehead, we can use a prop like a corner of a picture frame um, or the focus of looking out of the forehead um, with eyes opened. You know, in sports, they call it the zone. And I always love watching television and looking at the athletes who are really in their third eye. And when they're in their third eye, they really perform well. And when they've fallen into their solar plexus, they make mistakes or they're anxious about losing and their best self doesn't come forward. So it's, it's, uh, I have a great story where a student of mine who's learned about the third eye for a number of years decided to buy a ping pong table. And when she needs difficult needs to have difficult conversations with her husband, she plays ping pong with him and then they get in the third eye and their conversations are elevated. <laughs> Isn't that great? It gives new meaning to ping pong diplomacy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's get all our politicians playing ping pong together. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're kind of drawing towards the end of the show. If readers were to take only one thing from your book, what would you hope that they would learn from it? That life is more than we've been taught it is. That, um, that we're so much more than we've been taught we are. And from that, um, really cultivating curiosity to a deeper, to the deeper questions, to the meaning of life, to uh, who are we and why are we here? Mm. Do you ever get discouraged? And do you have your are your guides able to kind of talk you off the ledge? <laughs> yes, I do get discouraged. And I notice that when I'm discouraged, it's because I've fallen out of my third eye. And my guides are so remarkable in that they don't get discouraged. And it's one of the reasons I, I value their counsel. And um, they do, um, they do uh, practically help me through the navigation of my own life. And I always feel that my life is my work and my work is my hobby because my work has just been given to me and has been so remarkable and my life has been challenging. And so I've had to learn to apply the teachings of my guides in my own life. And I've found that it works, but I have also learned that it's not easy and so it's given me, I think, greater compassion and patience um, for my students. Mm -hmm. 
Well, compassion and patience are wonderful virtues. So, um, Ellen Tad, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, My pleasure. Your website is ellentad.com, E-L-L-E-N-T-A-D-D.com. Her book is The Infinite View, a guidebook for life on Earth. So that's the end of our show. I'm Miriam Knight. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us next week. In the meantime, have a blessed day, blessed week, and thanks for listening. Goodbye. Thank you.